0: Hello and welcome to Learning Curve, the Alpha Plus Group podcast. I'm your host, Emma, and today it is our pleasure to speak to Bradley Bush about the science of learning. Bradley is a chartered psychologist and director of InnerDrive. He is one of the leading experts on how research can best help students and teachers improve how they think, learn and perform. As a side note, he also works with international footballers and has helped members of Team GB win medals at the Olympics. So welcome, Brad.
1: Welcome. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's great to have you. Now, given it's a sizable topic, I wonder if you could start by giving us an overview of what the key components are that sit behind this concept of the science of learning.
1: Yeah, uh, I think what kind of got us interested in this area was there's some really interesting and powerful research out there to pretty much every question that you could possibly think of in education around what can help students learn? It's so like the big stuff around how do we motivate bored students? Why do they forget things? Even stuff like how much homework should we set? Why do they get distracted? Kind of every kind of big issue that impacts on learning. And a lot of this research is, it's either behind paywalls. It's really hard to find. If you do find it and access it, we think a lot of it is isn't actually written for those who need it. It's actually written for fellow psychologists. So it's often full of quite a lot of jargon. And so we just wanted to make something that could be really accessible, but also really practical. We think it's not enough for just research to be interesting. It has to lead to material changing in teaching and learning. And that's what we tried to do with with this concept of the science of learning.
0: And I guess for a lot of uh, people, the key question really is, what is it that makes some students able to learn more effectively and more efficiently than others? And I wonder if you can give us an insight into some some of the key strategies that you would recommend that students might want to try at home.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that interlinks. So as a basic principle, there's a lovely concept known as, um, known as the Matthew Effect. Uh, so the Matthew Effect, named after the story in the Bible, that the rich get richer. In terms of it relating to education and learning, we know that the more you know, the easier it is to learn new stuff, because essentially you have more anchor points to hook the new information onto. So... The gap widens if you know a lot to begin with, it's easier so then your rate of learning increases. And so it kind of becomes a bit of a chicken and egg because how do we get to a position where you know lots of stuff so that you can therefore learn even more stuff? Fundamentally, I think the research around learning and memory in this area is really interesting. So we know certain learning strategies are far more effective, accelerate that process than others. The ones that I think most people are starting to become familiar with in the research it's called retrieval practice. So the act of generating an answer to a question. And this is actually quite a simple concept. So the act of, by having to generate an answer, you're more likely to remember that answer. But it's fascinating because traditionally, I think most people saw stuff like quizzes the wrong way around. They typically saw you do lots of learning and then you do a quiz at the end to assess how much you've learned. Whereas actually retrieval practice suggests actually you don't do a quiz to assess the learning, the quiz is the learning, the quiz accelerates that learning. And when you start seeing it in terms of that point of view, you get into really interesting teaching discussions around, okay, how do we spend a large part of our lesson having the students generate answers to our questions? And then it throws up big topics like how much time should we spend on inquiry learning versus actually this kind of quite focused idea of building up knowledge so that you can then have more knowledge to explore with later on. So that's probably the, the main area that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Other big wins, I think there's lots of different little strategies, but the other big win, I think you're looking at concepts like spacing. So on a very basic level, we know people tend to forget things at a faster rate than we'd all probably like, which is why the classic frustration that I think we've all had in education is I taught you this last week, and yet you've already forgotten it. And often we take that kind of personally, like maybe I didn't teach it well enough, but often that's actually just human biology. It's kind of just how our brains work. And so then you get into concepts of, well, we need to revisit material, and we need to revisit material regularly. And that's really interesting because you could kind of get away with not doing that when we had stuff like modular exams, because you just do topic one, and then you do a test on topic one, and the same for two and three. But whenever you have linear assessments, which is far more common these days, if you don't revisit material, if you just do topic one and topic two and topic three and so on, by the time you get to topic 20, everyone's forgotten topic one. You have to start from scratch again. So we have to then factor this into curriculum around how do we actively build in times to revisit material. I think those two concepts are probably quite a sound principle for for the science of learning.
0: That's really interesting. Thanks, Brad. I think the concept of using quizzes as revision in and of itself is, is really helpful. And actually, I think a lot of people have a negative sort of attitude or response to the idea of a, a quiz or an exam. But actually, if you see it as a, as a way to help you learn, I think that could be a really helpful way of sort of repositioning it. Just going into a little bit more around memory, are there any sort of common pitfalls that you see students usually sort of tripping up on?
1: Yeah, well, like the absolute curse of all this stuff, as a rough rule of thumb, is the more you probably like doing it, chances are the probably worse it is for your memory, like your ability to remember stuff. So classic examples, uh, researchers kind of consistently found that simply rereading your notes over and over again in kind of the vain hope that it will ingrain into your memory that tends to be quite a poor strategy. Likewise, highlighting is another one that gives kind of the illusion of learning. It's like, look how many colours I have of different topics, different sections I've highlighted. So therefore, it looks like I've learned something here. But again, the evidence shows that although short-term, it makes you feel good about your learning, long-term, people tend not to remember as much when they do those sort of strategies. The other classic one, which we get asked all the time by students, is should I revise whilst listening to music? And yes, music is it's good at the gym. So I listen to music on the treadmill because I hate the gym and I'm trying to block out the pain of being at the gym. And yes, music can improve my mood. But we know when you have to think hard about something and try and remember it, music, especially if it has lyrics, hinders that process. And, and you'll know this is true. is um, If you've been driving in your car and you know where you're going, you can have the radio on, you can talk to the person next to you. But the second you're lost and have to think hard... What does everyone do is they turn the radio off, they politely tell the person next to them to shut up because they need to think on what they're doing. And the same is true with learning. And so the stuff that everyone likes and prefers, they end up thinking that because they like it, it's good for their learning and memory. But actually, all the evidence says often that's not the case. Like I always kind of half joke that like my toddler, he likes chocolate buttons for breakfast, but I know that's not what's best for him. And I think the same thing happens for learning. Is It's it's meant to be a struggle and it's meant to be mentally taxing and it's not always meant to be fun. And that's, I think, a big trap that a lot of people fall into is they kind of say, I know what's best for me, but actually what they often mean is I know what I like and prefer. And that's where this stuff can sometimes become quite quite tricky, but also then quite important.
0: Absolutely. I think that's where sort of research and evidence is, is really helpful, isn't it? Just to help us actually understand what the evidence shows in terms of what has the most impact and and is is effective And just continuing on that theme, is there anything you can tell us about in terms of sort of common myths that have been dispelled through research and evidence? I know there's been lots of different theories in terms of the science of learning in the past. And what have you learnt through sort of looking at the research and evidence to date about myths that we can now sort of put to bed?
1: Yeah, I mean, like probably the two biggest ones that we see, and it's sensitive because some people are really married to these beliefs, so they kind of often take it personally. The first one is about learning styles. So... Often these myths come from a really good place to start with. So there are good starting places, we all have different personalities and experiences, and what necessarily works best for you might not necessarily work best for me. And that, that's probably true. And somehow this is morphed into the idea that you can kind of neatly categorise people into either like visual, auditory, or kinesthetic learners, and that we have to match how I teach to your personal learning style. And in doing so, we could hope you hopefully accelerate your learning. Not only has there yet to be one research paper that actually has found this, loads of research papers have found either a null effect or actually a detrimental effect. And we see this sort of detrimental thing happen all the time because we've heard students come to us and go, I can't do this because I'm a kinesthetic learner. And it's what starts in the good place of personalization ends up being a really safety net of, I therefore don't have to try and put myself in an uncomfortable situation because it doesn't match my learning style. Recent surveys, even still, despite all the research, has pitched the number of about 90% of teachers still believe if you match teaching to learning style, it tends to help. What does matter the most is the content. So if I'm teaching music, it's mad for me not to involve a lot of auditory learning because I need you to hear the music. Likewise, if you're doing geography and you want to illustrate vectors and maps, of course it's going to be more visual. So it's not to say that we don't have these preferences, But what we do know is matching our style to everyone's unique preferences actually doesn't lead to much learning. So that's probably the main one. I mean, 90%, I think, is a huge, huge number. The other one that we see quite a lot of is... You know, this kind of whole myth that you're either a left brain or right brain person. And again, it came from a place like a kernel of truth, almost. Like there were some nice studies back in the day where people had various forms of brain damage. So parts of their brains weren't firing effectively, and they wanted to see what skills they could and and couldn't do. But again, it's kind of just been morphed into this idea, I can neatly categorize you. You're one or the other. You can do this thing and you can't do this thing. And the truth is, we know both parts of our brain hemisphere coordinate and function together. So to say you're one or the other, again, it's one of those things that sounds nice, but probably causes much more harm and much more learning loss than it ever intended.
0: Thanks. That's really helpful and interesting. And I just want to pick up, you mentioned sort of music or sort of auditory learning as, as a tool. I'm just thinking about wider tools that people often refer to when it comes to things like learning revision. I just wondered if you have thoughts on sort of mobile phones and, and their role in, in learning.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Unsurprisingly, I have many thoughts on mobile phones. The research on one hand is cloudy, because when they talk about technology for learning, in some of the studies, they lump mobile phones in with things like iPads and computers, which is tricky because in a lot of schools, it's quite popular now for each child to be issued a computer or a laptop. But the school, to an extent, control what apps go on there. Whereas mobile phones, if I'm honest, we shouldn't call them mobile phones. Students, for the most part, aren't using them to make phone calls. Like for the most part, students are using them to do gaming, social media, or to access porn. And we have to be really honest about that. And the thought of giving a teenager unfiltered access and asking them to self-regulate themselves, it's going to be really challenging. I think the biggest impacts on mobile phones are, one, I think relating it to sleep. So we know people who use their tablets and their mobile phones late at night, especially with the backlight on full brightness, tend to get lower quantity and lower quality of sleep. And I think there's personally a bit of a sleep crisis at the moment. I think it's fundamental to learning. And yet we know most students are getting nowhere near enough, although quite a amount. I think mobile phones play a big part in that. And then you've got all the basic elements of like just distractions and how they, I think the average time after a distraction is about 20 minutes or something to get back on task for each distraction we get. And mobile phones are just this huge source of distractions. You've got safeguarding issues at school in terms of just like well-being and care. But my favourite study on mobile phones, it was quite a long study. Um, I think they tracked various schools for a number of years and they wanted to compare what happens if we ban mobile phones in schools and we have a really strict mobile phone ban policy to schools that have a kind of a moderate policy where they kind of discourage it and schools that had no policy on mobile phones. And their measure of success was GCSE results in this particular study. And they found quite clearly schools who banned mobile phones had a significant improvement in GCSE results, even controlling for other factors. And what makes this study really interesting is when they then dig deeper into that data and that cohort, they found the students who get the most benefit of that mobile phone ban, so their GCSE grades increased the most, are historically the struggling and the disengaged and the underachieving students. And so then you kind of think, well, maybe there's a moral imperative. You know, we spoke about this Matthew effect about the rich getting richer and the wiser getting wiser. How do I stop the struggling students from struggling even more? And it seems that mobile phones, in terms of their grades, is a really cheap intervention for a school to do. It's hard to shift the needle on grades. And yet you're talking about something that doesn't require much expense and much time. It just requires consistency and pushing through a bit of pain at the start. And for me, I just think it's a a no-brainer. If I was starting a school from scratch and I could do any policy I want, that'd probably be one of the first things I think I'd do.
0: Seems like distraction is the key thing there and and making sure that that's minimised. Do you have any other sort of top tips in terms of setting up the best conditions for learning?
1: Yeah, the concept of managing distractions, I think, is really interesting. So there's been some nice impact on how we behave kind of in different contexts on different groups. So I always kind of say, like, my dad, he behaves very differently in a library to how he behaves when he goes to football because the unwritten rules of how you behave in these environments is so different. And so I find that sort of culture and that ethos stuff quite interesting. So one of my favourite studies in terms of setting up a good environment for learning is they place students, like the seating plans, uh, place people, um, some of the students were placed next to hard harder-working students, and others weren't. And they basically wanted to find, if I'm a weak or struggling student or distracted student, call it whatever you want, and you place me next to someone who's very attentive and works hard, do I drag them down and so they get worse results, or do they drag me up is what they kind of found. And this area of research is known as the Kohler effect, and it founds that it tends to hurt, if you struggle and you're surrounded by people who work hard, you tend to get raised up as opposed to then bring you down. And they've done this in a range of settings. They've done some in education. One of my favourite studies, um, they've done it in like tug of war. Like do you pull harder if you're the weakest member of the group and everyone else is pulling hard? They've done it with a relay race. So you take your typical relay, which has four legs. The slowest runner tends to put in a better time when they're part of a quicker relay, even though their part's independent of everyone else, because that's the norm and the expectation. And I think thinking about seating plans and where do we position students given that, is a really interesting line of research that people could look into.
0: Just picking up on that further, has there been much research into the impact then on those uh, sort of harder working students themselves in terms of sitting alongside those that are perhaps struggling more?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's kind of almost similar to the mobile phone study in terms of they might not get too much movement either way but they're kind of as you were, but the net average increases because you've increased the struggling and the disadvantage. So it might not necessarily have a cost, but it certainly has a benefit.
0: Thank you. You've mentioned a few times one of your favourite studies. And I'm just wondering, do you have a single favourite study that you could tell us about? <laughs> if you, if I were to say to you, and you, know, you have to choose one study that you think has been the sort of most influential, which one would you pick out?
1: Okay, so you asked me what study changed my life, essentially. <laughs> uh, uh, the one that made me reflect the most on my practice i think there's there's a really nice uh study a big review on resilience and i find resilience quite an interesting one because it's almost in danger of being like a buzzword like we all want resilient students and it's easy to say but like when you look at what does that actually mean in practice you typically come up with cheesy assemblies and motivational slogans on posters and yet that doesn't really lead to behavior change so the study that i love a lot about that is um the leading resilience researchers in the country. So they've researched resilience in the workplace, in Olympic athletes, in education. So kind of a broad range. One of their suggestions in terms of developing resilience is they say you can think about your environment in terms of only two factors. The first is the level of challenge that you place on your students. So essentially, how high do you set the bar? How much do you teach the top, believe they can improve, set ambitious goals for them, and really challenge them to do better? And then the other factor they look at is the level of support. So how included do your students feel they are? How much do they feel they belong in your classroom? Do they know who to turn to for emotional support in case they're upset and need to feel better? And they basically found that in order to develop resilience, you need a combination of the two. Uh, You have to set the bar high and people have to feel supported. Because if we set the bar high and people don't feel supported, long-term, that's unsustainable. If we ask you to do more but give you less to do it with, it leads to anxiety and stress and burnout. And likewise, if we don't set the bar high but we're really supportive, like this was me in my early stage of my career, I never wanted anyone to feel uncomfortable in my classroom. I wanted them to feel that this was a safe space and that they belonged and that was my main focus. And as a result, I was really supportive, but I look back now and I go, did I actually set the bar high enough? So when they answered a question, because I didn't want to make them ever feel at all uncomfortable, I would always accept their first answer, not necessarily their best answer. And although I did it with good intentions of trying to support them and making them feel included, I look back now and I kind of go, did I miss an opportunity to let them struggle in a safe environment, to let them wrestle with stuff while still being supported because you can't have that resilience unless you have that combination of the two. And it's really easy how, well, I look back on my practice, it was really easy for me to subtly and almost unconsciously lower my expectations of what you could achieve in order to make you feel good in the classroom without actually getting you better at the task, which long-term would have made them feel gooder, gooder, more good for longer. And I think that one, that kind of combination of the two, because the reason I think that study made an impact is it's pretty much the first time I'd seen something tangible and concrete on resilience, as opposed to just being about feelings and hoping that people could bounce back. It actually gave me a framework that I could work towards within my practice to be able to go, am I setting the right level of challenge? Am I setting the right level of support? And in that case, I can kind of be confident that I'm doing what I could to help them develop their resilience.
0: Is there something that parents could take away from this as well, Brad, when they're thinking about supporting children at home?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is really the big next step for cognitive science and education, if I'm honest, because. It started with we need to educate teachers, and I think a lot of teachers are becoming much more evidence-based and research-informed over the last five to ten years. we seeing that filter down to students going, here's how you should revise, and these are the things you can do. And yet we need to complete that triangle, essentially, between students, parents, and staff. Because if there's mixed messages, if they don't know why we're suggesting what we're doing, they're probably with good intentions. It's really easy to give bad advice. I think it's really interesting as a parent... We know our child the best. Like no one can tell me probably anything more about my child than I probably already know to an extent, maybe a little bit around the edges. And it's really easy for me to conflate that with, I therefore know the most about how they learn. Whereas my sample size as a parent at the moment, because I've only got one child, is a sample size of one. And yet schools have been educating children for years and years and years. And so I actually think there is a bit of a responsibility for schools to educate parents on this, educating them about... Well, just how much impact does screen time have and how important is sleep? Because a lot of that stuff that happens outside of the classroom has a huge impact on the grades that students get, and yet schools are the ones who are ultimately judged on those grades. So like a really simple one, like there is huge research, like it's almost, you can't, it's probably one of the most researched things in in education of the impact that breakfast has on students' ability to concentrate and remember things, and ultimately how well they do in school. And yet, for a lot of children, they don't eat breakfast at home. And so we see more breakfast clubs popping up. But you can argue, is it the state's responsibility to feed all children, as opposed to perhaps just the most vulnerable? But it is the school's responsibility, I think, to educate all parents about the importance of this. Because unless you know, as a parent, you might not think it's as big a deal as it actually is. And yet, if your kid's getting nine and a half hours sleep and eating breakfast on those two factors alone I'm pretty confident you're in the top 5% of students in the country because most students don't do both of those things
0: That's fascinating thank you and just building on this idea of, sort of learning from you know learning parents learning from the schools I'm just thinking back to the beginning where I mentioned that you have a particularly interesting job working both in the education sector and in the sports industry and I'm just wondering what could we learn if we were to look to the sports field as educators?
1: So some of the parallels are interesting is you have this measure, this balance between learning, which happens between match day, and performance, which happens on match day, which is kind of similar to students have to learn and then perform in a one-off situation in their test. The biggest difference, I think, for me, I'll tell you the biggest difference before I tell you what I think we can learn from them, is for the elite athletes we work with, I never have to convince any of them that winning a gold medal is of high value. Like they've chosen to sign up to that themselves. So then we just need to guide that motivation and direct it. Whereas school is one of the only things where we all want students to be intrinsically motivated to do well at school. And yet for most of them, they don't have a choice if they should come to school. Like we tell them legally, you have to come to school. So it's not your choice. But I'd really like it if you were motivated to do this thing that I'm making you do. And so that's quite an interesting contrast. I don't think there's too many domains that challenge presents itself where I want you to be motivated for something that's not your choice really at all. So it's tricky. The one thing I think we can take a lot from sports, so this was quite popular at the London Olympics and it's kind of mainstream now in sports, this concept of sort of what they call plan, do, review. So you can kind of break down performances, how do we plan as thoroughly and as effectively as possible before the event, how do we execute performance afterwards, and what does the debrief and the reflection look like subsequently. And this or plan do review, it's really interesting, if anyone's listening who's been following any of the research around metacognition, which things like the Education Endowment Foundation have highlighted as a really effective learning strategy, kind of intertwined with metacognition is planning, monitor and evaluating, which is basically plan, do, review from sport. And so it's kind of saying, how do we help our students before they come to a task? How do I help them prepare to learn breakfast, sleep, reflecting on what skills they need to do and what knowledge they need to recall? How do I help them monitor their learning, so their self regulation and manage their emotions during? And how do I help them reflect on that learning afterwards So giving them high quality feedback and helping them receive that feedback. And I think there's some nice parallels there with the way elite sport does it and how I see more and more schools and educators trying to do it as well with their students.
0: We've touched on lots of different interesting studies varying from, as we just mentioned, mobile phones to sports to sleep. For teachers, parents or students who want to engage further with psychological research, where would you recommend they start?
1: Is this part where I get to plug my own uh, content (laughs) here? Um, So... It is hard because as I said earlier, it is behind paywalls and a lot of this research is full of jargon. The beauty and also the curse of the internet is we have more evidence and research and content available at our fingertips that anyone can read for free. But the curse of that is because there's so much, it's hard to know where to start or what filter to apply. Fortunately, our publisher has allowed us to put, I think, a third of our studies from the book. So about 30 of them online for free, kind of these brief summaries so that's at innerdrive.co.uk. Outside of us, I think places like the Education Endowment Foundation, the Charter of College for Teaching, Evidence into Education, these places are providing a lot of material free of charge, which is really good. I do think social media can be a fountain of knowledge, like especially in education. There are some some of the smartest people I've ever met who are consistently blogging, giving away their thoughts and ideas for free, with links to the original research. So that's, I think, the only caveat for me is I think it's good to read a wide range of of sources, be it research or blogs. However, I would say if reading stuff online, any blog that doesn't link or hyperlink to some of the original studies, I always question is, is this based on research or is this just your opinion? And it's fine if it is their opinion because we should be able to learn from people's individual experiences, but we should also know that's what we're doing when we're doing it. We're not assuming it is based on research. But those will probably be the the main places I'd probably recommend to to start with.
0: Thank you. And I think that's a really important point about scrutinising the sources and, and making sure that actually what you're reading does have a, a sound basis to it. So thank you for, for raising that. No
1: worries. And, and just on that note, one thing I'm finding a lot when people read about research online, I kind of call it the TripAdvisor effect at the moment. So people on TripAdvisor, they go on and they either hate their experience at that restaurant or hotel and they give it one star and they're like full of rage or they love it and they give it five stars, no one's ever motivated enough to go on and go, yeah, it was all right, I'll give it three stars. So you kind of only get these extremes. And I think something similar does happen with research in education, is it's really easy to go, this one study is the answer, and we all just need to do this thing, and this is the cure. And likewise, when there's conflicting research, as there always will be, and that's what we should want from research, is contrast and nuance, it's really easy to go, this is debunked because this one study says so. And so you get that trip advisor of it either being brilliant or it being awful. And I think the more research you read, the easier it is to go, how does this one individual study fit in with the wider range and the context? And so I can kind of get that balance and not almost get swept up by... A curse of the internet is clickbait headlines, which have to be an extreme to grab people's attention that make it sound simple because it's almost certainly always more nuanced when you start scratching a bit deeper.
0: Well, thank you very much, Bradley. You've definitely whet our appetite and, and got us interested to go and learn a bit more about all of these different topics. There's obviously a lot to learn. So just a reminder: if anybody does want to find out more, Inner Drive does have a website where there's plenty of resources, guides and overviews of educational research that you can access. And I will certainly be heading there after our talk uh, today. But just want to say thank you very much for your time, uh, Bradley, and I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again soon.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's been, been a pleasure.